Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. The Battle of Gallipoli was fought on the Gallipoli Peninsula from February 19, 1915 to January 9, 1916. The Entente powers hoped to knock the Ottoman Empire, one of the central powers, out of the war by seizing control of the Dardanelles and then putting the capital city of Constantinople in the crosshairs. The goal was to break the stalemate on the Western Front, relieve pressure on Russia, and ensure access to the Black Sea. The operation was a brainchild of Winston Churchill, and the landings on April 25, 1915, involved the use of Anzac troops. After months of difficult fighting, the Allied troops were withdrawn in defeat. Despite this defeat, historians point to Gallipoli as a pivotal moment in the formation of a national consciousness in Australia and New Zealand. Similarly, the Ottoman victory had a profound impact on the formation of modern Turkey. And today we're going to examine the Battle of Gallipoli from the Ottoman perspective and explore how this event continues to be interpreted in Turkey today. And we are joined by Dr. Eugel Yanikta. Professor of History at the University of Richmond, and an expert on Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, and World War I. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Amanda. To start off with, could you set the stage for us? How does the Ottoman Empire become involved in World War I? Is it a war of choice, or is it a war of necessity? Looked at it from the political perspective of what was visible or how the leadership felt at the time, uh, they certainly saw it as a war of necessity. After all, in the end, they surely made a choice, but their choices were quite limited. And this is what makes it a necessity. Uh, the Balkan Wars that started in 1912-1913 was a great disaster for the Ottoman Empire. And in fact, when uh, the war ended, actually before the war ended, the Allies, the Europeans declared that uh, no territory gained by uh, war would be allowed to remain in the, ha- and in the hands of the victors. But when it was the Balkan alliance, that is to say Bulgaria, Greece, Serbia, etc., that actually defeated the Ottoman Empire, uh, Europeans changed their mind on this completely. So what the Ottomans lost basically became a a permanent loss to those countries. Uh, One of the reasons I guess the Ottomans felt vulnerable going into uh, World War I was they felt that during the Balkan Wars, they had no allies in Europe. And immediately after the war, especially during the July crisis in Europe, they started to look for allies. They reached out to um, to the British, the French, and their rumors even, they even reached out to Russia, the Russian Empire, but they were rebuffed by these powers and were, were told only to sort of remain neutral. And to, to the Ottoman leadership, this smelled of basically, you know, another sign of European designs on the Ottoman Empire. And if the war started, an Ottoman Empire would become basically a territory to be divided among the victors. In fact, this was written on the wall from the Ottoman perspective. I'm going to reach out to another event back in 1907, actually. In 1907, England and Russia had divided Iran on paper in Switzerland into three territories, Russian influence in the north, British in the south, and center would, would basically in the control of the Iranian rulers. So this was always a fear 
among the Ottomans that whenever sort of Europeans told them to remain neutral, this is what it would come down to. So during the July crisis, uh, initial sort of approaches to the Allies didn't result in anything. Uh, They also reached out to Germany, and Germany actually rebuffed the uh, Ottoman alliance initially. But under the sort of personal, I guess, leadership of of the Kaiser, uh, the Germans reached back, and eventually an alliance was a secret alliance, that is, between Germany and the Ottoman Empire. Uh, Ottomans didn't enter the war until early November, basically. Uh, But as soon as the war in Europe started and that secret treaty of alliance was signed, the military went into uh, armed neutrality, basically. Uh, Since we're talking about a pre-modern empire, it would have taken months to do that. and, And it actually took months to do that. So it is a decision in the end, but it's a decision uh, that sort of could only go in one direction, uh, which also makes it uh, basically a a decision of necessity. When we were initially discussing this interview, you pointed out that the West tends to mark April 25th, the date of the actual landings, as the main commemorative date. But in Turkey, March 18th is the main commemorative date. Why is March 18th so significant? So March 18th is the anniversary or the day of the naval battle when clearly the Allies were defeated in this naval battle. Uh, Although there is no real good explanation for this and and historians have searched for this, uh, it seems that there are some possibilities, so we can't speculate. One, uh, March is before April 25. uh, So on the first anniversary of the naval battle, uh, the minister of war at the time, who was also the acting commander of the Ottoman uh, forces, uh, Enver Pasha, uh, decided to commemorate the battle on March 18th, 1916. So some some have speculated that this is clearly because only about 100 Ottoman troops died on that day. And, and basically, the uh, Allied side suffered, uh, if not in numbers, but certainly loss of capital sh- ships, uh, significant defeat. So this was more of a black and white kind of a situation where the Ottomans clearly seemed to be the winning side. April 25th, which starts the land battle, the amphibious landing of, of the Allied troops, Obviously, in the end, it's also an Ottoman victory, but the losses were really great for the Ottoman Empire, as it was for the Allied side as well. So I think it it is a it's a on the one hand, maybe it's not some a decision that was carefully thought about initially. Uh, March 18 came first, and it was something to be uh, commemorated on March 18, 1916, and that's exactly what they did. And doing it on on April 25th was simply going to remind people of those losses, not that anybody would forget, obviously, especially loved ones of those who who died in the battle. But we really don't know anything besides this, why that decision uh, was made. Uh, Recently, however, I should add, uh, it, it started really actually in the 60s, uh, but it has become more commonplace uh, to also join the allies or representative of the allies coming from Australia, New Zealand, England, etc., to to, uh, mark the battle on April 25th. The Turkish side has sort of joined this as well uh, recently. But in terms of, I guess, real commemoration, March 18th is still the day on which uh, the Battle of Gallipoli is remembered. Can you walk us through an overview of the Battle of Gallipoli from an Ottoman perspective? Basically, what happened start to finish? 
Sure. Um, I, I can tell this sort of uh, from, a, I guess, Ottoman perspective, as, as you requested, but I'll also put it in the context of some sort of European historians tend to look at the Battle of Gallipoli frequently, but not always. And it depends on sort of who's writing. And, and a lot of sort of popular histories do this, but sometimes even professionals. Uh, so European and sometimes American historians also see the Battle of Gallipoli as, as a narrowly missed victory. Um, uh, that is to say, they tend to blame everything ranging from command and organization, geography, climate, etc., so though this is a counterfactual history of what might have been, and they're not really professional historians, what, what professional historians are supposed to do, but one still sees these kinds of speculations. This narrative, I should say, denied the Ottoman side, won the battle, even if they lost the war in the end. So it's sort of like creating excuses, from my perspective anyway, and perspective of some Ottoman historians, as to, you know, uh, it's not that Ottomans didn't win, but the Allies lost due to other factors beside having enemy who could fight, I guess, is one way to put it, right? So uh, Ottomans sometimes also, uh, initially too, later Turkish Republic, uh, sort of look at this, depending on obviously ideological background of, of the historians as well, also tend to put a great deal of weight on this battle. And maybe we can talk about it later during this uh, interview or, or podcast in terms of how the battle is remembered as well. But there is this great effort uh, starting actually not immediately after the war, obviously, but in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and, and it, it continues even today. There are sort of conflicting memorialization and remembrance of the war, what it represents based on the ideology of those who's doing the remembering. And certainly early on in the 30s and 40s and later, uh, Battle of Gallipoli was actually seen as one of these sort of a, a prototype, as it were, of the War of Independence that started in 1919 and lasted until 1923, mostly against the Greeks, but also against the French and the British, after which the Turkish Republic was established. So we're talking about an, an, a state that ended in 1922, the Ottoman Empire. So that's where the victory of, of the Battle of Gallipoli belongs. And the Turkish Republic starts in technically 1923. But that battle is usually considered as if it's part of the War of Independence, which started in 1919, even though in the 30s, a good deal of the history of the Ottoman Empire was completely rejected under this ideology. The Battle of Gallipoli, uh, told from Turkish or Ottoman perspective, is somewhat different uh, than, I guess, the Western sort of view of, of this history, European historians. And by this, I don't mean to include every historian. There are certainly historians who are much more careful and critical. Uh, but what I was saying earlier about the sense of narrowly missed uh, victory from the Allied perspective sometimes colors sort of the interpretations of what how the battle was fought and how it was was an Ottoman victory. So some of these sources, uh, as I said, or histories, there is this tendency sometimes, maybe we can call them old-fashioned histories, to deny any sort of agency, should we say, to the Ottoman military, that, that this might have been a fair and square battle, and they won it with their physical labor uh, and, and their willingness to commit, commit to the war. And some of these kinds of his, histories also sort of, if they must give credit to the Ottoman side, they tend to give credit to the German general who 
was in charge of Fifth Army, which was in uh, charge of the or, or the command of the region. This is Otto, General Otto Lamont von Sanders. Uh, this is frequently encountered in in European histories of the Battle of Gallipoli. That yes, you know, if if some credit must be given to the Ottoman side, that credit generally goes to able sort of leadership of the Germans who were there, which also again denies any agency to the Ottomans as well. But when we look at the detail from the Turkish side, from the Ottoman side, in fact, when when histories were beginning to be written towards the end of the war, Otto Lamont von Sanders, who obviously remained in the Ottoman Empire until the very end of the war, he, by the way, came to the Ottoman Empire in charge of the military mission that was to train the Ottoman military. Uh, we we see actually significant shortcomings or, or mistakes on his part, as outlined by the commanders, Ottoman commanders who fought there, but also by later histories. We know, for example, uh, the Fifth Army, which was activated in March 1915 on, under the command of uh, Wong Senders. Uh, until that period, the main responsibility for the defense of the peninsula was under the command of what was called Dardanelles, or in Turkish, Çanakkale Fortified Area Command, which was was basically part of the Ottoman Artillery Corps. The defensive plan of the Fortified Area Command uh, was to place, and it's always, it had always been like this, to put sort of main bodies of their units near what they thought possible landing sites, for example. Then they would keep small reserve units uh, some distance away, so then those reserve units uh, would run over to wherever they were needed. When Lamont von Sanders came, he sort of, after a brief sort of inspection of the area, and I think sort of reflecting the attitude at the time, dismissed the Ottoman plans as old-fashioned and completely reversed what he wanted to do in terms of the defense of the area. So instead of having the large units at areas predicted to be uh, landing areas, he decided to put small units all over the place around possible landing sites and kept the main bodies in reserve, usually some distance away from wherever these landings might take place. He also predicted, for example, two areas that were quite different than what the Ottoman Fortified Area Command thought that the enemy would land. And eventually they actually landed in those places, give or take a mile. Uh, but one senders thought they would land in a completely different location. And it turned out to be completely in incorrect in that sense. And it took him about a couple of days to recognize that he was wrong about this, which meant losing of time. And it also turned out once the Allies landed on, on uh, April 25th, and it became visible where they were landing either as the main landing or as diversion, it took significant amount of time to get the main bodies of soldiers to these landing sites because the area terrain, uh, there was not enough transportation, there were, there were not enough good roads. So this caused significant delay in getting those uh, troops to uh, those locations uh, where they were needed. So in the end, we could say, basically, if the area command plans had been in place, and I don't like do, doing these counterfactual histories, but, you know, I, I guess sort of we can permit just a little bit of it in this instance to say, basically, uh, that Anzac landing and what became uh, Anzac Cove eventually uh, would have been possibly prevented altogether at that point if there were large units. And he also, this is he, by, by that I mean Limon von Sanders, uh, gave instructions that nobody was to act on their own initiative 
without confirming things with him, which uh, clearly slowed things down because on April 25th, after sunrise, he decided to leave his command post, for example, to go to other places. Meanwhile, messages were coming from possible landing sites and asking for permission to stop the enemy. And obviously, this resulted in significant amount of time loss. Initial fighting was quite fierce, obviously. The Ottoman side uh, worked quite hard at it, denying the Allies and a beachhead, and occasionally those sort of small victories were gained uh, by the Allied side. Obviously, this, this eventually led to what we call the stalemate, and the battle turned into trench warfare. It was not something the Ottoman side certainly had any experience with. It, and one could say the same thing, I suppose, about the Allied troops, even though the uh, trench warfare had been going on in Europe. But these were units clearly not coming from the Western Front. So what happened basically was, you know, small gains of territory on each side, bloody battles. And based on the decisions and, and strategy of Liman Won Senders, when each side dug in, there were numerous attempts to dislodge the enemy from the Ottoman side, obviously with artillery bombing of the area when the Ottomans attacked in close formation resulted in significantly heavy losses on the Ottoman side, much to do fear of the Ottoman officers themselves that the troops were being needlessly wasted and there was no way, there was no way to lodge the enemy. So uh, this back and forth continued and eventually the Ottoman side, and I guess we can say certainly, uh, Liman Won Senders came to the conclusion that this was uh, nothing but wasting of human life. And in fact, some of the high-ranking Ottoman officers in the area went behind Liman Won Senders back to appeal to Enver Pasha to, to get him to interfere uh, in this needless loss of life. But Enver, I, I suppose, siding with Liman Won Senders did not interfere. Uh, eventually, uh, the British side decided that they were going to try both in May, but also in August, a number of other sort of landings or, or attacks. But most of these obviously resulted in, in sort of uh, losses. And eventually, by, you could say, mid-fall um, of, of 1960, uh, 1915, the Allied side was contemplating withdrawal from the area. And by December, they certainly started to do this. Ottoman sources sort of indicate that there was a sense among the Ottoman officers that this might have happened, but uh, I guess maybe they were also thinking it as wishful thinking, so they didn't necessarily follow up on it. So in some tech sectors, certainly, allied withdrawal and uh, was uh, sort of a surprise to the Ottoman side. And once that happened, obviously, uh, Ottomans were quite ecstatic uh, that the battle had ended in, in, in victory and the allies had withdrawn. They maintained some of the troops there just in case allies came back, but they were also needed in, in all kinds of places, including on the Syria-Palestine front in, in eastern Anatolia against the Russians. And this is something that historians and some of the officers at the time criticized Enver Pasha for, but Ottomans also sent some of these troops either directly from the Battle of Gallipoli, or at least those who served in the Battle of Gallipoli, to European fronts to help either Austria-Hungarians or the Germans. So they went to Galicia front and to the Romanian front as well. The Ottoman Empire was a multi-ethnic, multi-religious society. Did the Ottoman army that fought at Gallipoli reflect this? And what was the composition of those forces? It's difficult to give exact numbers about this question. 
We basically don't know. And in fact, I looked into this myself, but I studied from a, a sort of a indirect perspective. I, I studied uh, uh, prisoners of war in British and, and, and Russian hands. And I looked at the ethnic makeup of those who were taken uh, prisoners, because we don't necessarily know of the nearly 3 million men who were conscripted in the Ottoman Empire from 1914 to 1918. Um, these kinds of things were not necessarily written down. They didn't have statistics, or, or at least they didn't worry about it. But at least from the, this indirect perspective, it seems like nearly Nearly 60% of the Ottoman troops were people who identified or were identified by authorities or by the British in this case as ethnic Turks. Those ethnic Turks could have included people who might have sort of been ethnic groups who came from the Caucasus, for example. We can include Circassians in this. We can include small groups like Chechens, etc. Uh, for example, they didn't differentiate uh, between Turks and Kurds. Either the, the British didn't for sure. But that 60% could include those uh, other groups as well. Since Ottoman Empire was a multi-ethnic, multi-religious empire, of course, it also included Arabs who came from Arab provinces, Syria, Palestine, Iraq, and, and certainly other regions as well. Uh, but along with those smaller groups of non-Muslim soldiers, uh, ma mainly Greeks, Armenians, obviously also some Jews also fought in the Ottoman army. But the military made a decision at some point, and partially because of the distrust towards uh, non-Muslim populations, to disarm the non-Muslim populations, ethnic populations, to have them serve in labor units. And some of these obviously served in the Battle of Gallipoli too, both as laborers, but also as, as armed soldiers. We have accounts of Armenians, for example, and we have accounts of um, uh, ethnic Greeks who are serving in the Battle of Gallipoli. We, we certainly have accounts, obviously, of Arabs who served in the region as well. And these sort of uh, recognition of the ethnic diversity of the Ottoman Empire was was sort of, should we say, significantly more visible during the Ottoman Empire itself than, than it was during the Turkish Republic, because there was this great deal of effort put into sort of Turkifying or holding the Turkish identity above everything else, which eventually resulted in sort of exclusion or maybe more correctly, ignoring of the participation of other ethnic groups, because the republic basically saw itself as, as a Turkish republic and offered this Turkish citizenship to everybody who remained within, within its borders. And therefore, any Arab, any Kurd, any Armenian, the state saw uh, from its perspective was also Turkish in that regard by virtue of citizenship. So when we look at histories from this time period, they will usually uh, refer to the soldiers, Ottoman soldiers, as Turkish soldiers rather than Ottoman soldiers, or they won't readily acknowledge uh, the ethnic diversity of the military. Uh, but more recent histories, more critical histories, obviously, um, this includes some of mine, recognize the ethnic diversity of the military as well. So tell us about Mustafa Kemal. Who was he and how instrumental was he in the Ottoman victory? This is something I uh, quite, I guess controversial is, is the word, certainly. And we can talk about the memory of, of the event, remembrance of the event, which, which sort of creates this issue, actually, right? So he was a colonel during the Battle of, of Gallipoli. He was in charge of the 19th Division, and he was actually in command of a reserve unit, much, much to his sort of disappointment, I guess you could say. 
And he was not supposed to act until Limam Won Sanders or some some of his people at the headquarters were were to instruct it. So Mustafa Kemal actually, when, when once the Anzac landing starts, and he hears from other Ottoman officers the landing is taking place, uh, he he decides that he must act immediately because obviously ta- any time passed will, will certainly create even larger problems, right? So he happens to be one of those people who ignored the order of Limam Won Senders to wait for his instructions before making any moves, right? So he sends a message to the headquarters and moves his troops to Anzac area to uh, fight the enemy. In fact, there are some sort of episodes of confusion, not immediately, but with, within a few days of this, uh, that also causes some issues, mostly delays, right? But this is a result of sort of multiple information coming from where possible other landings are taking place. So there is a great deal of confusion. Uh, some of them he believes, for example, to be correct, and he moves his troops there, but others turn out to be incorrect information, which causes delays, right? So this initial action is quite important in the sense that by moving his troops, they were able to stop the Anzac troops from moving too much into the interior, right? So, but the issue is here that he's a colonel. He's not in charge of the battle. He will become just as important later on uh, during the Anafarta battles when uh, Lamont Won Sanders sort of recognizes, I suppose, his ability and puts him in charge of a significant number of troops there in a very important battle that eventually leads to the victory itself. But obviously, Mustafa Kemal is not fighting the battle all by himself. What happens with this issue is that it a lot depends on one who's doing the looking in terms of ideology. And it also depends when whether this uh, look at Mustafa Kemal is sort of um, retrospective. That is to say, if someone is writing this history that would eventually fit into what I call the national or nationalist historiography in the 1930s, 40s, or even later on, there are certainly some historians, both professional and amateur, who still continue to do this, sometimes represent Mustafa Kemal as if he alone won this battle or he alone was responsible for the battle itself or the victory itself, I should say. Uh, There is sort of alternative interpretations uh, of both the Battle of Gallipoli and also the role of Mustafa Kemal in this. In fact, there are multiple. Uh, One I examined in an article that completely denies any sort of agency, and in fact, some of them even deny, which happens to be incorrect, of course, that Mustafa Kemal even was at the Battle of Gallipoli, for example. So this sort of narrative is, is the product of conservative uh, religiously motivated groups uh, who write about the war. Uh, mostly, uh, they are sort of popular historians. But unfortunately, in, in our times, uh, those kinds of books tend to be more popular because they're more accessible. They tell a simple story uh, versus, you know, accounts of professional historians. Uh, so in their account, uh, during the battle at some point, Mustafa Kemal went to Istanbul, for example. They seize upon this absence, brief absence, to say, see, he was in Istanbul. He was not even in the Battle of Gallipoli. Uh, therefore, he, he can't be responsible. And two, that he was a colonel, which is true, Right. Uh, that he was not in charge of the operations, et cetera. But there is something to be said about this sort of uh, disregarding Limam Won Sanders' orders in order to take the initiative 
But we must also add that he wasn't the only one, uh, but he was certainly, he was someone who played a crucial role, I guess, in a number of victories that eventually resulted in the battle for being a victory for the Ottoman side. And as we all know, Mustafa Kemal becomes the sort of leader of the Turkish War of Independence, which starts in 1919, ends in 1923, with, with first the defeat of the Greeks who had invaded uh, Western Anatolia, starting in Izmir or Smyrna, but eventually the withdrawal of the British who had been in occupation of the capital, Ottoman capital, I should say, of Istanbul. Meanwhile, he and some of his comrades, military obviously, but also civilian leadership uh, in the resistance movement is what, what we'll call them, and established an, another government in the city of Ankara, uh, this, and, and a parliament actually. So technically, parliament was in charge of this other government. In fact, it was in competition frequently with the imperial government in, in Istanbul. So after the establishment of, of the Republic, there was this effort led by Mustafa Kemal, who became the president of the Republic, to, uh, I guess, start this reform movement. A reform movement included secularization of the Republic. Obviously, religion had played a significant role in the Ottoman Empire. But in order to establish a, a nation state, or, or at least a, a nation that was united on, under a sort of common identity, but not a religious identity, an ethnic identity, even though it might have been a civilian identity that, that he, I'm sorry, civil identity that he was advocating. One of the things he decided to do was to rewrite history in a certain way. What that meant basically was almost complete exclusion of Ottoman history from Turkish history, as if the Ottoman Empire almost did not exist. Or when it came in, it came in in only very brief episodes. And technically, too, the Battle of Gallipoli actually belonged, it makes sense, uh, chronologically, with the Ottoman Empire, uh, because it was fought in 1915-1916. So early histories of, of the Turkish Republic, I guess, treated the year either 1919, so end of the war, beginning of the War of Independence, as if year sort of zero or year one, as if, you know, as the French did after the French Revolution. But eventually, I think the importance of the Battle of Gallipoli and certainly Mustafa Kemal's role in it was recognized as an important thing to include in this national uh, history of, of the Turkish Republic. So first, the Battle of Gallipoli itself uh, uh, came in as if, you know, represented as if it's part of the, the War of Independence and eventually became part of the, you know, growingly less exclusionary, I guess, uh, what we might say, of the uh, history of the Turkish Republic. That is to say, World War One eventually was inserted as well, not only the Battle of Gallipoli. Uh, so that's how sort of histories of the First World War uh, became part of the history of the Turkish Republic. And this is actually technically, one could say, uh, there had not been too many sort of scholarly or critical studies of the First World War uh, in 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 either in the United States or in Europe or in the Turkish Republic uh, because of this exclusion. Uh, but now, sort of historians, a uh, number of historians, uh, e either my cohort or younger ones, are doing their best best to catch up with this. So your research clearly focuses a lot on the construction of national identity, particularly in terms of the idea that a nation is socially constructed as a community and that it's essentially imagined by the people who imagine themselves as part of that community. 
Obviously, historical narratives are essential to this process. And again, you've already been touching on this, but can you outline for us a little bit more how different groups within modern Turkey have crafted this narrative for themselves over the last century? And remind us again, what are they focusing on and what are different groups leaving out of the narrative? Sure. So if we're talking about Mustafa Kemal, we're talking about the Battle of Gallipoli. If we're talking about the Battle of Gallipoli, we're talking about the uh, uh, talking about Mustafa Kemal. Recent histories, but also uh, what I'm going to call some early histories by popular historians, represented the Battle of Gallipoli in in a different uh, in a number of different ways. In fact, maybe before getting into that, let me mention this one additional thing. Um, I haven't studied this myself, but I know from the works of other historians, there was actually, uh, it existed during the Ottoman Empire after sort of the Battle of Gallipoli, and Merpesha decided that a, a history of the battle must be written, and he put a few officers in charge of that. So the effort had started even during the Ottoman Empire. But in the 1920s and 30s, there was also an effort by the Turkish Republic, or I should say the military and the military press itself, to write the history of the battle. So these histories, initially written by uh, many of the officers, so we're not talking about professional historians here, who came as historians trained at a university, but we're talking uh, about officers who had taken part in the battle of itself, battle itself who wrote both their memoirs, sort of if they had diaries that included these as well. But some of them came to write the histories of, of the battle from their perspective by using documents, by using diaries and memoirs of, of their comrades in arms. So these histories, some historians tell us, actually were quite objective in terms of uh, how they represented the battle itself, right? But along with this, what was happening was uh, popular histories of the Battle of Gallipoli, uh, but certainly as sort of school textbooks to be used in education, were also being written that started to give, I guess we could say, undue credit to Mustafa Kemal as if he alone had won the battle itself, right? So there was this conflict between the two narratives. And the narratives of, of the officers who had been writing these histories and being published uh, in the military press, not necessarily official histories, but eventually official histories of the battle will be written as well, sort of were more accurate in the sense they also covered not only the accomplishments of Mustafa Kemal, but also other officers who played significant role from the highest in rank to those who were at the same rank as, as Mustafa Kemal for example. But starting a bit later, uh, and this sort of gained momentum after the current uh, ruling party, AKP or AK Party, came to power in the early 2000s, uh, I guess sort of taking courage from that, a number of, you know, conservative, religiously minded, I don't quite want to say Islamist because that implies something uh, different, even though some of them would certainly uh, belong to that category, started to write histories of the battle. Their main idea, I guess you could say, was twofold. One, deny any sort of uh, uh, agency to Mustafa Kemal by suggesting that he was not there or saying that it was a colonel. It had nothing to do with him. Uh, some went as far as echoing the sort of histories of some European historians and, and German historians to say 
the commander in charge was the was the person who was responsible for the victory. That is to say, Limam won't senders. So it's really odd that these people would would be willing to give credit to Limam won't senders, but but nobody really on on the Turkish or the Ottoman side. And there was this other effort, basically, that meant to challenge the earlier uh, national or nationalist narrative, which argued that the soldiers there in Gallipoli were fighting to defend their nation against the invading and colonial imperial powers. So the motivation that the nationalist narrative uh, pinned behind why the soldiers obviously fought valiantly and eventually won the battle was because they were motivated by the idea of defending their nation. So the Conservative religious interpretation, actually, because there is this conflict between the idea of a nation and religion and Islam, tend to give credit uh, to the ideology of Islam or, or, or religion as the motivating factor for the troops who had fought in the Battle of Gallipoli. That is to say, some of them represent uh, the Battle of Gallipoli as a, as a crusade uh, launched by European powers. And in fact, the Europeans' commanders certainly didn't help this occasionally, some of them referring to not to the battle directly itself, but to the war against the Ottoman Empire as a crusade, especially, for example, when the when the city of Jerusalem was captured by the Allies. Uh, this was represented as, as if the crusaders had returned uh, to the Holy Land. So there's, there's some, uh, obviously, connection there, but they tend to sort of, uh, uh, sort of ignore Nation, the nation or nationalism as a motivating factor, partially because obviously the idea of nationalism uh, runs counter to the idea of religious identity. But at the same time, it was something that was suggested by secularists or Mustafa Kemal as the motivating factor. Therefore, its exclusion obviously benefits this conservative Islamic interpretation of the battle if they were to suggest that the soldiers were motivated by nothing but their religious convictions. So what this does basically also uh, to deny any sort of involvement of non-Muslim soldiers in the Battle of Gallipoli, if we if they represented as you know Muslim soldiers fighting to defend their religion from invading uh, colonial powers, imperialist powers. On the other hand, the nationalist narrative does this to a certain extent as well, because they represent this victory as a Turkish victory, as if Again, only ethnic Turkish groups or, or populations were fighting. What this means is Arabs, Kurds, Chechens, uh, Circassians, or any other group for that matter are not mentioned specifically. Uh, they're not mentioned because it would have run counter to the idea of this civic nationalism that everyone who lived within the borders of Turkey was a Turkish citizen and through citizenship, they became Turkish. So referring to, I'm not excusing this behavior, obviously, but trying to explain what they were thinking about this. On the one hand, if they're saying, well, nobody is, you know, Kurdish Arab, everybody's Turkish. And if you suddenly start to recognize a contribution of those ethnicities in the Battle of Gallipoli or any other battle during the uh, during the First World War, uh, this would have obviously undermined 
that narrative of of Turkish citizens as basically sort of representing uh, the the Ottoman Empire or or the Turkish Republic in this battle of Gallipoli. And that chronology is in itself is quite confusing. There was actually a study done, I forgot the year when this was, but some scholars who write on the Battle of Gallipoli can uh, uh, mention this. A survey was conducted uh, at perhaps junior high level. I'm not 100% sure. It could be high school history courses. This kind of idea that the Battle of Gallipoli was actually part of the War of Independence was what the uh, survey came away with when the students were asked, you know, what was or when was the Battle of Gallipoli? Uh, Many of the students responded by saying that it was part of the War of Independence, for example. So despite the fact that there are these efforts by by critical historians who separate these things and and point out that these two events were different. Uh, One was part of the War of Independence. One was uh, part of the First World War. Some textbooks uh, necessarily do not reflect that kind of information. It's very interesting how it's all conflated. The Ottoman Empire wins the Battle of Gallipoli, loses the war. What are your final thoughts on the Ottoman Empire, Turkey, and the legacy of World War One? Both the Battle of Gallipoli, but the sort of First World War uh, needs to be studied significantly more from the Ottoman perspective. And I, as also mentioned, uh, uh, my generation of scholars are continuing to do this. And in fact, I'm working on a sort of uh, history of uh, emotions and masculinity uh, uh, during the First World War. And there are a number of other uh, scholars of of my generation who are sort of uh, about to, I guess, sort of come out with new publications, books, uh, examining the war from different angles. And there are also a good number of uh, uh, younger scholars, either at dissertation stage or working on their first book, who look at the home front uh, rather than the battlefront. I'm more interested on, on the battlefront itself, even if it, if it means examining it uh, as a history of uh, masculinity and emotions. Now, what's important, I think, uh, in terms of the Ottoman Great War is that uh, something I could have mentioned earlier, in fact, it was on my mind to mention it, but it makes more sense, I think, in this context. The Ottoman Empire was mostly an illiterate society. In 1927, so something, something like... Uh, if, if we look at the, the war ended, the uh, Great War in 1918. So nine years later was the first modern census under the Turkish Republic was conducted. And this census actually asked citizens whether they were literate or not. So that number in 1927 was just under 10%. So this means during the First World War, it was probably, probably, all we can do is guess, between 5 or 7% or possibly even less, because one of the things the Turkish Republic did under Mustafa Kemal was to uh, uh, make education universal and free. Uh, so even though they would have been sort of at you know young age, but that 10% clearly would have included in 1927 uh, young children who had just learned to read and write, which would have significantly and therefore unnaturally increased the number of uh, literate population. Some Ottoman officers, for example, uh, mentioned obviously rate would have been higher in urban areas. They estimate that the literacy rate among their soldiers uh, was no more than 1%. So what this means basically is 
our sources compared to uh, historians of Europe who work on World War I is significantly limited. So even if we accept 5% as, as the general norm, even if that all, all of that 5% wrote something about the, about the war, one, you know, many of these things were not published, remained in private hands. Uh, and some are coming out sort of uh, recently. There are more publications of memoirs, and I hope more of those come out. And they certainly give us sort of different angles, different experiences to explore topics that we were not able to do only sort of five to 10 years ago, for example. So hopefully these will lead to sort of uh, better and more comprehensive, more critical histories of uh, the Ottoman uh, World War I. Uh, and also help us, those historians who are more critical, to deal uh, with these sort of misrepresentations, conflations of issues, sort of interference of ideologies in interpretations of history. Uh, and the First World War, obviously, is, is one that lends itself to such either intentional or unintentional uh, misinterpretation, partially because of lack of sources, partially because of, of people who are motivated by ideology. But we need to study, for example, the role of uh, non-Muslim groups more in more detail, the role of uh, uh, non-Turkish ethnic groups in more detail. But there are some obstacles to this. So one of those, for example, those issues uh, uh, relating to ethnic groups, ethnic groups in the Ottoman Empire during World War One, uh, namely uh, what happened in 1915 to Ottoman Armenians, their deportation and eventual massacre, etc., makes this topic extremely sensitive uh, in in Turkey, less so outside of Turkey. But this is part of the reason one could add that there is sort of this ideological battle going on about the Battle of Gallipoli specifically, but also the First World War itself. Well, Dr. Yanika, thank you very much for joining us today. This has been very interesting. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.